kia horoia tāku porokaki ngā wai o tōku ake whenua. Justine Murray tēnei. Kia ora tātou katoa. I'm Maria Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray. And this is Te Ahika, Radio New Zealand's Māori Features Programme. Now, it's one thing knowing you're Māori. And quite another being Māori. And for Adele White, it was her membership of a Māori mentoring programme at university that cemented her Māori tanga. I think part of actually finding myself as Māori had, had come about through my membership of Te Ropu Awhena Pataia as well. I, I always knew I was Māori. I always went to my marae, um, you know, tāngi, etc, etc, hang out with uncles and cousins. But I guess I didn't really know, know what it meant truly to be Māori until I'd come to the university and come part of the Ropu. We've got that up first. After which, I get a lesson in definitions from Nina Huxton. What does taikura mean? Taikura means the heart of the wood. And when you look at collectively all these nine groups here, you imagine the collective knowledge within those Napaki nine groups. Uh, hey, collective knowledge of all those igni in the one place? Oh. Isn't that fabulous? Oh, it's exciting. It just makes you feel. <laughs> and a woman is celebrated for her contribution to Ngāti Kahungunu Kapahaka. Parity Not Charity is how Peter Ture describes his role as Executive Officer for Nga Aho Whakari. The organisation representing Māori in the film and television industry. He's coming up. Before we get into all of that, let's meet Justine Murray, the new co-host and producer of Te Ahika. Kia ora, Justine. Kia ora, Mariah. Ko rerohia mai, ko waikwe no hiakwe. Kia ora tātou katoa, ko Justine Maria Hau, no te moana o Tauranga, ko ngai te rangi me ngā te ranginui oku iwi, ko ngai tamarawaho me ngai tūkairangi oku hapu, ko hungahunga toroa me huria oku marae, ko tāki timu te waka, ko maua o te maunga. Kia ora and greetings to you all, I'm Justine and it's great to be here. I've worked in iwi radio for 10 years in various roles, including news, um, on-air announcing, promotions, and my last role was as uh, programme director. I have a passion for writing, movies, taking long walks along the beach, and just hanging around at home. Tequila sunrise. Um, I'm so glad to be here, um, especially with my fellow colleague, uh, Mariah, and of course everybody here at Radio New Zealand. And I'm so happy to be bringing you stories um, via Te Ahika from a Māori perspective. Nō reira tēnei te mihi atu ki a koutou katoa. Now, it's Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori coming up from the 21st to the 27th of July. The theme this year is Te Reo in the Home. And we thought we'd kick it off for you, Ethiwi, with some pronunciation lessons. So, welcome to our guide to place name pronunciation. Hey, Justine, I thought I'd go to Parapram. Maraia e kaog. Ko te kuputika, kai te haria hau ki para para umu. Why don't we go surfing down at Paikok? Maria, kai te he te ra kupu o Paikok ko Paikakariki ke. Paikakariki. Aye. Hey Justine, should we catch the train to Hart Valley? E Maria, he pānui tāku ki a koe, ko te ingoa tika mo Hart Valley 
ko Awakairangi. Te koro neihana is up in Hamilton, eh? Ai, katsu te koro neihana ki tēnei wahitika ko Kirikiriroa. Kirikiriroa. So stay tuned over the next couple of weeks. Justine and I will be continuing with our guide to correct pronunciation of place names within Aotearoa. As the newly appointed Māori Fellow in the Biology Faculty of the Science Department at Victoria University, Dr Adele White is attempting to re-engage and excite Māori communities about science. So how is she doing that? Well, she's going home for one thing, that's back to Napier, and delivering science within a marae setting, starting at Puke Mukimuki Marae. Kia ora koutou, ko kahurānaki toko maunga, ko naruroro toko awa, ko nati kahanunu te iwi. Our program was run in January, so it was one of the sort of early initiatives, I guess, that the Marae wanted to get involved in. Um, I was lucky because one of my, uh, one of my again, someone else that works with Afina, our Po Arahi, uh, Te Taiti Cooper, was involved in the committee for Pukimoki Marae, and he said it would be a good candidate for this sort of initiative, the cool. sort of uh, an urban Marae, mm. up and coming, interested in getting sort of new strands involved, you know, different co-pup are involved on the marae. And uh, so they came to Wellington, we had a discussion and it all just went from there. And I guess the great thing about this was it wasn't just Victoria University, it was just us sort of, you know, the scientists barging in and saying, right, this is what we're going to do. It really was a partnership, it really was um, a discussion. So um, we talked to each other. <laughs> um, we said, okay, these are the sorts of things that we do at the university. Um, do Are any of these interesting to you or not? <laughs> it turned out that there were a lot of things that the kaimatua were interested in that the marae committee did feel would be relevant to our people. And what were some of those things that the kaimatua um, thought so the kids might be interested in? <laughs> the marine environment was right. a big one. Uh, that's something that I uh, was involved in for my PhD, looking for ways to protect and enhance our marine environment. Uh, the other thing that we looked at was DNA and whakapapa. Wow. Um, yeah, so those two things quite naturally sort of synergised together, I guess. First day we had a porphyry. Um Second day was mostly the physics stuff, so it was a whole heap of different physics things. We did do something with um, ping pong balls and um, vacuum cleaners, making them float in mid-air. That's the ping-pong balls, not the vacuum cleaners. They were floating in mid-air, which was great. Cool, they would love that. Yeah, the looks on their faces when they saw the ball just... Whoosh. Before um, they actually did it, there was a whole lot of kōrero on, on different forces acting you know, through the vacuum cleaner. I think the vacuum cleaner was actually supposed to be sucking, but then somehow different forces would cause it to actually blow. So... I don't know exactly what happened, but basically they put a ping-pong ball on top and it actually held it in place. And maybe it's something you could do at home with your normal vacuum cleaner set on blow. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it was really cool anyway. The, the kid just held the, the vacuum, vacuum cleaner, cleaner and then, and then someone the dropped ball. the ping-pong ball on top and then it just... Oh. They, could, they could move the, the vacuum cleaner and the ping-pong ball would move to the side and, yeah, they could turn the suction or the blowing down and up and it would sort of up and down. It was really cool. So that was on day two and day three we had the DNA stuff so it was doing the DNA extraction experiments looking at the DNA on the gels and we had a whole lot of talks as well about um, what DNA is <laughs> um, how you can use it so the different applications of DNA and I think some of that went down really well especially with some of the older participants as well they were quite um, amazed I guess at all the different mm-hmm. things you can do with DNA. 
Oh, I'm looking at a photo at the moment, and there's a kid sitting there with a lab coat on, with um, and you've got some test tubes, and they've got gloves on, and the child's looking very intensely <laughs> at what she's doing. Um, yeah, it was great fun. Um, what we did for part of the day was to actually extract DNA from food, and we just used sort of everyday household materials. So we had... Um, DNA from different food items. So we used strawberry, I think, was one of the, the good examples How do you that we do used. That? Um, it's actually really remarkably easy. Um, all you do is take the strawberry, uh, mush it up, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, so you're mushing it up in a solution of basically a very small uh, salt solution, so a little bit of salt and water. Then we strained the material, uh, sorry, strained the mushed up fruit or whatever it is, food, through some muslin cloth and just collected the, uh, you know, liquidy the liquidy thing. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got that in a test tube. And then all you need to do is just pour a little bit of ethanol, which is like alcohol, basically, concentrated alcohol, down the side of the test tube. And at the interface between the two layers of solution, uh, some DNA will precipitate, so kind of come out of the solution and just form a little kind of cloudy, wispy, stuff at the interface and yeah you can see it quite clearly there's a lot of it and you can just kind of swirl it up on a little rod and, and look at it and um do stuff with it um What's the so kind of stuff you were doing with it? <laughs> <laughs> well for this um because we were working on a middle eye we were we had to be conscious of safety for everyone so we used we used things that which were household and that sort of thing so we weren't um so if we were doing this in a laboratory situation, we'd use different chemicals which pr provide a sort of more pristine sample, I guess. So basically in the Marae we were, um, yeah, so after we'd done the DNA extraction, um, we wanted to see what the DNA looked like on gels. So we had some DNA that we'd already extracted from uh, different plants and animals and we had that in test tubes. We just added a little bit of dye so we could see where we put it was and put it into the gel. And we've got these gels. Gels are basically like slabs of jelly and they've got little wells in them, like little holes where you put the DNA and you suck up the DNA using kind of like a turkey baster thing, but it's called a pipette. Um, so you suck that out of your tube and put it into your holes in the wells in your gel. And then you um, put an electric current through the gel and the DNA will actually migrate through the gel, um, and different sized DNA will migrate at different rates, and it will be distributed through the gel. And then when you look at that gel under UV light, you can actually see where the DNA has ended up on the gel. And so you can actually see what DNA, DNA looks like. And what, what it, what it look, well, it doesn't really look like much because it's kind of... Um, so I'm getting that image of those letters. Yeah, you're getting yeah. But you that don't, might be you from don't, watching too yeah, much you TV. Don't, you don't see you don't see you don't see like a double helix. Like you don't see oh, yeah. the twirly bits yeah. like you see. Oh, but you do see. Um, so you would have seen CSI, and sometimes you see they've got a film on the TV with all these different bands on it. Yeah, but you can see different bands, and the bands are related to the different aspects of the DNA that you're looking at. So it all depends on what type of DNA you put on as to what type of pattern you'll get out um, but for part of the day we actually talked about different uses of DNA and um, many people would have seen for example shows like CSI where you can take DNA banding patterns, compare your suspect with mm. you know your known people in your databases That's kind of simplified that sort of isn't it for TV? Um, that's pretty much what you do Oh okay 
Um, some of the techniques that they show on TV have been simplified, right. <laughs> and it makes me mad sometimes when I'm watching them, and it's like, oh my goodness, that's not how you do that. It doesn't take five seconds. It takes five hours to do that. <laughs> but um, in general, the concepts are the same. So you can actually take DNA from an unknown and from a known and process them and compare them and, and get profiles like they show on TV. Those are real, but the processes to get them maybe have been um, sped up. <laughs> so how often that day did you hear kids say to you, Miss, what do you have to do to get human DNA? Um, surprisingly enough. <laughs> nothing. No, nothing. No, I think they were kind of so intrigued and in, into, into what DNA. we were doing with the DNA. So it was we did strawberry DNA and I think it was beans and, you know, all sorts of things that you can find in the house. So... No one asked. Um, Gosh, that's it, interesting, isn't it? Was it was something that we had discussed maybe doing. Um, like but you do, DNA Modi. Yeah, yeah. That's when you get into those sort of elements. So we we decided to... Avoid to, it. To avoid, well, not <laughs> avoid it for now, but just um, maybe put that on the back burner and think about it for next time. Um, but, yeah, we had consent from everyone um, for the bits that we did do. So it was all, it was all good. <laughs> I mean, is DNA Modi? What's your thoughts on that? Oh, crikey. <laughs> Crikey. Um, what are my thoughts on that? DNA is kind of like a blueprint, but by itself a blueprint I don't think can have Modi. I think it's the coming together of everything perhaps that actually gives, you know, sort of an extra element to it. I, I don't know. I know lots of people would have a lot of different views on this, and I think it is a subject that, that could be quite contentious. Yeah, it's um, and it is something that the Bioethics Council, for example, um, has been thinking about. And mm. we had a few years ago, we had the moratorium on genetic modification in New mm. Zealand. That was in 2000, actually, when I started my master's. Um, so, yeah, that's another interesting topic, and I, I don't have the answers for that. But. So Adele, do you have you found that your knowledge of things Māori have been enhanced in your career in biological sciences? Like, has it made things a bit more clearer to you, or that's a really good question? I think uh, I think part of actually finding myself as Māori had come about through my membership of Te Ropu Afena Pataia as well. I always knew I was Māori. I always went to my marae, um, you know, tangi, etc., etc., hang out with uncles and cousins. But I guess I didn't really know, know what it meant truly to be Māori until I'd come to the university and come part of the Suropu, uh, you know, giving the afi to other students, helping them through, becoming sort of like a whānau on campus kind of thing. Um and then realising what what my degree could perhaps mean for our people and for my whānau, hapu iwi, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that came a little bit later. So when I was at high school and all that, it wasn't, never really entered my head, but now I'm a bit older, I realise that potentially I could, there's a lot I could do to help maybe and I'd like to do that. Um, and then on the third day, we talked about the marine environment. So I talked about some of my research that I was doing for my PhD. And we also talked about marine reserves and aquaculture. So it was a pretty packed few days. Uh, and some of my earlier research for my master's was looking uh, at tracing Māori migration using a type of DNA 
called mitochondrial DNA. So, oh, that's a big word. Sorry about that. I had to throw that in there somewhere. What does that mean? Anyway, we just used a type of DNA, <laughs> basically a type of DNA to trace ancestry um, for Māori. Uh, so that was one of the themes. And another of the themes was based around um, physics um, and wave migration and sound migration uh, and how all these things could ha- actually help us to get to Aotearoa in terms of navigation. Yeah, because our oral histories show that, you know, we use the stars and we were able to navigate through wave patterns. The way waves moved, you could read them and you'd know whether you were close to land, that sort of thing. Yes, that's right. So we were exploring those sorts of ideas um, with with the tamariki, with the Adults, young and old, kaimatua. Um, we had a really good age group there, so from all all the way from I don't know, maybe two years old up to eighty plus. So everyone was there exploring these themes together. And um, as I say, it was a partnership. So once the scientists had had their say, kaimatua could add their interpretation, uh, their ideas and knowledge as well. So it really was a a full package, I think, and really was. Um, a learning experience for everyone. I know some of my colleagues learnt a heck of a lot and a lot more than they had ever thought that they would get um, out of it. And they felt that they were the students themselves. So um, that was really, really good. You know, um, have you ever felt that there's been a conflict between... So often for Māori, you know, so much of our, our knowledge is oral and we've become quite disconnected from the evidence-based kind of model as to why things occur. And I know there are some schools of thought that say, you know, science is superior, you know, oral histories is not. I mean, have you ever found that there's been a conflict there for you and t- as a Māori working in a, in a um, discipline that may not necessarily accept something, you know, oral history has been valid? I've been wanting to jump in the whole time here because I totally agree with you. Uh, there are conflicts all the time between what is expected in the university institution, for lack of a better word, and um, what I feel is right in terms of you know community considerations um, and in terms of the knowledge as well. I don't feel that one is superior or better or worse than the other. They're both different forms of knowledge and I think both have a lot to offer each other. And I think um, people are becoming more aware of this idea, which is why there is a lot more interest now in what they call traditional ecological knowledge. And there is kind of, um, yeah, a lot of researchers out there that are interested in in, in getting this information from communities, um, which could be good or it could be bad, depending on how it's handled, I guess, and how Mm. the communities... um, how aware the communities are that this, you know, of how this information could be used, where it's going to be used, how it's going to be used. Um, so the community has to be sure that the person that they're working with, that they trust them, yeah. um, you know, that the use of the information is going to hopefully have some benefit for that community and not just be of benefit for the researcher. Um, often researchers can it's make a reciprocal their, relationship. It, it should be reciprocal, mm-hmm. and that's the way that I feel. But I do think that in some instances, people will make their name on information that they've gathered from other sources, and the other sources haven't haven't of their communities or whatever. They haven't had the recognition that they uh, maybe deserve. Yeah. But at the same time, I think things are changing, and that most researchers don't purposely go in there to rip communities off, but it is all about sort of that reciprocal relationship and really making sure that it is a partnership. And as I say, I think scientists are more aware of these um, 
situations now. There's people like myself involved as well that are sort of saying, right, how about we do it this way, guys? Yes, we have done it like this in the past, but is that the best way? Uh, maybe there's another way forward. So, so I guess in a way you're actually shaping how science interacts with Māori and the role that you have as a mentor, but also just in the fact that you're actually in that discipline. Yes, I think that is part of my role to to have us, in, in a small way, hopefully influence the way things mm. are done in my department and just say, mm. hey... Um, let's look at doing things this way or leading by example even and just showing, you know, this is a way that I like to do things and and, and I think other people are taking some of it on board, which is good. Yeah. Not everyone is, but, you know. Because I'm just thinking, like, just going back to the whole thing about DNA and proving um, stuff around papa. why would that be necessary? Wouldn't it just be valid enough to, you know, your nanny and your kroa have told you you came from blah, blah, you know, why Why would you need to prove? I don't think it's necessary. I guess, again, it comes back to another way of looking at the same problem, or not a problem, another way of looking at the same situation. Right. Um, so there's yeah, there's always two sides of the coin. There's always multiple ways of coming at a, at a I don't know, a not something that you want to look at. Or Yeah, I don't know if it's necessary to prove it per se, but... I guess, um, so for example, in my research, I wanted to look at how many women would need to have been in the founding waka to come to New Zealand to get the um, diversity that we found. Um, And it actually was quite a high number of women, uh, but I think it was about 120 to 180 women. So it really does um, mean that there had to be a large number of of waka coming to uh, Aotearoa, which really does back up a lot of the oral histories that I've heard, you know, multiple waka over many different time periods and not just the seven that you quite often hear of. <laughs> that you still hear, the that seven canoe myth. I mean, that's what I've heard up until up until my master's even, so that was... <laughs> still hearing it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I didn't really realise how many there were until I sort of did a bit more sort of looking into it. So And it was staggered migration too. I mean, that's all part of that myth as well, eh? Mm. That everybody came at once. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So uh, my research walker. wasn't able to, mm. to say when the staggering happened or, or any of that kind of thing, but it was able to show that, yes, there were a lot of women that came. So far more than probably that could come in seven waka. So, um, yeah. And I guess it also ends up um, dealing to other myths around that whole migration scenario, which is, you know, floated here. I mean, you would never be able to survive, and there's known accounts of um, the waka carrying plants yeah. that were then replanted here That's and right. that enab- enabled people to live. Yeah, so the large number, totally, there's, there's no way that accidentally 180 women could get on a walker and float somewhere. So that totally put stage any of that. I don't know how much, how many. And that there were return journeys as well. And that there were return well. journeys as well, mm. yeah. And I think there's lots of other evidence, not just the DNA evidence and the oral evidence, but also linguistics and archaeological evidence. So certain artefacts turning up in places where they shouldn't be naturally. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of evidence involved. And the DNA is just a very small part of that overall picture and the oral history is another part of it so you know it all fits together I think to make a story 
there's a misconception out there that Māori aren't good scientists, and I think it's something that's pushed maybe in an early age. So um, up until a certain point, I think all kids think science are pretty, is pretty cool, yeah. and science is all around us. Let's, let's not make any bones about it. Um, a lot of the things we do, a lot of the technology we rely on, cell phones, etc., it's all science. Um, and I think kids really love science up until a certain point, um, and then for some reason... People think it's only for certain people, you know, brainy people or something. I yeah. don't know, or, or white people in coats are the sort of common uh, thing that you think about when people say science in, in general. Um, but I think um, our tūpuna have been scientists for a long, long time, and a lot of the resources that we relied on when we came to Aotearoa, it took a lot of sort of science, understanding, know-how, um, you know, thinking along the lines of discovering things to, to actually really make a go of it here in Aotearoa. And um, yeah, I think it's really rediscovering these things and and getting it out there to our to our youth that science really is an option and a really fun and exciting and relevant option for Māori. How's that for Wedoi, Dr. Del White? And since she first started at university nearly ten years ago, the number of Māori students undertaking science degrees has increased threefold. I'm Mariah Rakuraku. And I'm Justin Murray, and this is Tiahika. At radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Tiahika, there is additional information about Te Ropu Afina Pūtaiao, the science mentoring program for Māori students operating at Victoria University. As well as those photos I was talking about, taken at Pukemuki Muki Maraya Napier. Now that Marae may sound familiar to a few of you. Last year I did an interview with Tifana Aranui about Puke Muki Muki Marae. And like all previous programs, it's available for podcasting at radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Tiahika. Kapahaka is often presented as something younger people do that at times leave our komatua on the sidelines after they reach a certain age. A few weekends ago there was a historic gathering of komatua at Te Papa and later that evening at an awards dinner. So keeping with Kahununu for the meantime, here's Taikura Kinati Kahununu Fanui. Twice or three times with uh, Heretang and Wairarapa. 
uh, we van down to, to meet up with uh, Western Innovations. Yep. So this was me, Nita. It gives you an opportunity to sing all your iwi, all the iwi waiata. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's that haka? What's the kahunu haka? Uh, tikatunu. Aye, tikatunu. Yes. So that'll be coming out at 3 o'clock, will it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I don't you will have to come and see you. <laughs> I will be. See my relations to the hunter. <laughs> the heart of the wood Aye. and when you look at collectively all these nine groups here you imagine the collective knowledge within those nine hey, collective knowledge of all those iwi in the one place oh. isn't that fabulous oh, it is. it's exciting it just makes you feel oh. <laughs> <laughs> who were some of the more well-known kahunene composers they were prolific composers Aye. we had heaps of composers from Wairoa and we're only just starting to resurrect their, their songs. Like in the 1920s and during the, the war years. But today we're honouring um, Praire Tomona and Rita Tau Huata. And that's Canon Lee Yes. And both of them were prolific composers. So what's the way up to the Canon um, Lee wrote? And they're all well known. Tutira Maita Iwis. Yes, Tutira was his. And they're all well known right across. Everybody, even foreigners, sing Tutira because he sang it in Portland when he went overseas. Oh, when he went over for the war? Yeah, no, after he actually composed that after, I believe, after the war, when he came back. That's when he started really composing. How many of your Europe came down this weekend? Uh, well, we're 18 strong, and how many of us came about? 12 of us managed to come down this time and link up with the rest of Kahuna. Hee hee! And we're thoroughly enjoying it. Come boy.
Parira, composed by Ngati Kahunganu composer Paraire Tumwana. And performed by Taikura Kinati Kahunganu Fanui at Te Papa a few weeks back. I was talking with Nina Huxton. At our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika, there are photos of the team looking stunning in blue, as well as a photo of our following guest, Win Huata, with her tamariki. For well over 20 years, Kahurangi Māori Dance Company, Kahurangi, have entertained audiences both here and abroad with their stylized kapahaka routines and four-part harmonies. A whānau-driven business spearheaded by Tamahuata and his wife Winhuata, as you're about to hear, Win found it a little overwhelming when she received an award the night of the Komatsua Kapahaka. Elated. I'm elated of getting an award like this. With my family, they're the ones that do all this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the yeah. kids must have got it from somewhere, eh? Yeah, no, <laughs> mum's our back, mum's the backbone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice recognition. Yes. Yeah. Nice recognition on a national <laughs> scale in front of all the other oh, iwi. Yeah, it's just a shock, I tell you. <laughs> God, imagine if you won an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a room drop dead. <laughs> Obviously, you have had a long association with Kapahaka. Yes, through my husband. Yeah. And And he's always been the front person. I'm not... He's the back person. (laughs) I don't get... You know, that's not me. But it it is tonight. (laughs) There you go. Leverage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm about to. Now it's time for you, Shine. Yes. All right for him, but now it's time for you. Watch out. (laughs) Now, how many in the Rofu from Kahununi came down? We've got 48. Gee, that's big, eh? Yes. I was um, asking one of the queer earlier today what you do for practices because everybody lives from Wairua down to Wairarapa. Yes, we um, maybe twice a month or once a month. Everybody gets together. Yes, they come to Hedatonga. Yeah. yeah, and it's lovely. It's just the the friendships you form and everything. Like, yeah, that's what it's all about. And last night was an example of it. Hey, what happened last night? Oh, last night it was just we all went back to our hotels afterwards, and we just sat there and sang, and you know, very little jungle juice. Because <laughs> I guess what goes on in these events is there's the whakafanaingatanga amongst oh, yourselves, but then there's also the whakafanaingatanga that goes on between the iwi too, eh? Very much so. There's so. all those relationships yes. being re-established yes. and reaffirmed, and and seeing how they enjoyed themselves, you know, coming out and getting with everybody, like you say, fucker for ownership, and it was just lovely for all of them. And if anyone goes away this weekend not enjoying themselves, they're... what's wrong with them? Yes. <laughs> Win Huata talking about an award she received, acknowledging her contribution to Ngāti Kahununu Kapahaka. From hometown to Hollywood, goodies and baddies, brown faces appearing in big places. It's all part of the television and film scene and Māori are there at the forefront, with representation in the form of Ngā Aho Whakari. Ngā Aho Whakari is a national body established in 1996, representing Māori in film, television and video. Driven by calls from Māori within the industry, Ngā Te Māori, Mō Te Māori, by Māori and for Māori. 
Its membership is made up of actors, producers, directors and production companies. Uh, kia ora, my name is Peter Tuday and I'm the new executive officer for Ngā Aho Whakari, Māori Image Makers. Executive officer, that's a pretty flash title. Well, actually, I thought chief executive officer sounded better, but it's only executive officer, so I'm comfortable with that. Ngāo Whakari represents Māori people working in the industry. Uh, Ngāo Whakari advocates on behalf of Māori people working in the industry and probably more importantly advocates on behalf of all Māori within that industry sector to see that we have parity, not charity, to see that we have a voice and that we're in control of our voice, to see that that voice has quality. Quality means of production, quality um, times for it to screen and for people to be able to access it. We're not alone in this. We're part of a wider, wider and broader community that includes things like the Putahi Paho, um, Māori Television Service, and the Whakapumawi Te Reo, the Kohanga Reo Trust, I mean the whole raft and network of people who are working for the uh, survival, maintenance and growth of our reo and, um, and the well-being of our, our, our people and the professional advancement of our people in these new mediums that mean the world is our playground now. We're not just confined to Aotearoa. The world now is a place that knows us and knows that they want to see more of us, want to know what's behind that tattooed face, want to know what's behind that haka, want to know how is it that we stand alongside when we do that haka with our Pākehā neighbours, with our Pacific neighbours, and we celebrate it together with them. And people offshore, outside of New Zealand, can see how empowered other people are who aren't of our culture but who are New Zealanders how empowered they are by the participation in those things like the haka with us. And so there's a big question mark for the world and they want to see more of us and we're the only ones who can deliver it to them. So what's the advantage of being a member of Na'aho Whakari? Well, you get to meet people like us for a start. That's got to be worth every cent. But the main advantage is, is that we... You contribute to the building of a network. I don't want people to see it as how it advances themselves personally. I want to see it as a means for people to contribute to the network we're building, to the achievement we're, we're helping to create. And we're not taking all of the credit for that at all. It would be wrong to do that. But um, we want to be, for the, the, the broadcasting, the filmmaking industries, what the Māori Women's Welfare League was to the Māori people, you know, during that time, and still are too. But we want to specifically enhance Māori values across this industry. Now, uh, the Na'aho Whakari officers are based up in Auckland. We are based in Auckland, but that's not to say we're not a national organisation. We're a national organisation by virtue of our members. Now it's very easy when you're sitting up there in Auckland to think the whole world revolves around Ponsonby and that's where we're based. But um, really it's, it's our national network that is the most important thing. And the other, the other factor about the industry itself is it's enabling people to take their professional lives back home. 
wherever home is. And it's the digital domain that allows us to do that. So we're no longer locked into this thing. I want to work in television, so I have to go and live in Auckland or Wellington. Those days are gone. Oh, you're going to have to come and visit. Um, but, but that's okay. But really, you create your best work, your truest work, when you're at home. And so that's what, what this, new, um, this new realm offers us. And so we have to build this strong network to make sure that those opportunities don't stay in these made centres, make sure those opportunities um, for creating things, for distributing things, for getting things out to Aotearoa and the world, uh, we have to uh, build and maintain those networks. And I have to say, the network has been built and developed over the last 10 years by a group of very effective, hard-working um, Māori people, and so we've got that to build on. Now, what are some of the other activities that Ngāaho Whakari are facilitating? Um, well, I suppose the, the key one, really, at the moment is to paipai atata, and that is quite simply to see Māori script development. We have a fund to, pro to promote Māori script development for feature films, so that's quite specifically focused for feature films. Um, and that's, a, that's quite an exciting one. Out of that, we want to, you know, get um, Māori features up to where they uh, can pitch for funding and where those proposal, proposals are at the same quality as, as everything else. And so they're pitching for funding in New Zealand and in Cannes and America, anywhere, and so they're up to that standard. So that's a specific focus uh, with the Pai Pai Atata. We're working with the New Zealand Writers Guild um, on short film competitions. We're working with uh, the Māori tourism industry and Toy Māori um, to enhance our presence in those international markets, to see where our place is in the export drive of Māori excellence. And in terms of that, it's not just looking at uh, what Ngāaho Whakari members produce and how we export that. It's looking how what the services we provide can enhance the point of difference for Māori and New Zealand producers in the international market. And it's that point of difference that makes us special. It makes us special in Scotland, in San Francisco, in China and Africa. It's our uniqueness. No one else can steal it. No one else can deliver it the way we can. And in that we have something of value that uh, presents a growth opportunity for our industry um, and for our members. Our website is uh, www.ngaahofakari.co.nz and you can get hold of us either paipai at ngaahofakari.co.nz or executive at ngaahofakari or administration at ngaahofakari. Either way it'll get to us. And um, our strength is based on our membership and the diversity of, our, uh, diversity of our membership. Not just filmmakers, not just people who are successful, but from students, people thinking about it, people um, taking courses so that they're aware of what the opportunities are, um, all the way to through to people who are working in Hollywood most of the time, so they don't have any time to come to our, our meetings and haven't been for years, but they are still members, and they're still members because they want to be part of this growth, and they are part of this growth. 
even if they're Māori people working offshore. Executive Officer Peter Ture with the pros of Nga Ahofakari, the organisation representing Māori interests in the film and television industry. Kia horoia taku purakaki ngā wai o tō kuakifinua. Let my neck be washed by the waters of my own land. This whakatauki acknowledges that while we live away from our homelands, our kainga tūturu, there's nothing like being at home. Kia ora. Ko maraia rakuraku ahau, kua te whakarongo mai koutou, kia te ahika. Hioi anō, ko Justin Murray tēnei, he mihi mahana ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, ki ngā hua mahi, ngā mihi. Hei a tērā wiki e tewi, he mihi atu ki a koutou katoa, mai te ahika ki a tātou katoa, Mauri ora. Mauri ora.